The people who are part of your community are people who care about their personal wellness and development. And so by their participation, they get to experience it. It's not that we belong, it's that we have a sense of belonging, right? So it's not that you're part of a community, you have a sense of community. And for human beings, if you look, the greatest punishment that we can give people is actually solitary confinement or exile. But when you change the conversation to something empowering, if you can create a safe space where those vulnerability loops can open and close, Suddenly, you can change your Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I have been so excited to release this episode. I think it's seriously been one of my favorites. When I received John Levy's book, You Are Invited, I was excited because I was familiar with his influencers dinner, but I hadn't actually read his work. And then, wow, talk about learning so much mind-blowing information about how we as humans work, about our networks and our relationships, and how to really form a thriving community. And then talking with John was amazing. We actually, after we stopped recording, talked about Star Trek episodes for like 10 minutes. Um, He's really amazing. I really, really think you guys are going to adore this episode. The show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash invited. Those show notes will have a full transcript. So definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. And then there will be another giveaway on my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Just find the announcement post about this episode. Also comment something you learned to enter to win something I love. And by the way, not many people take me up on that Instagram giveaway. So definitely check it out. You have a very, very good chance of winning. And what is the prize? It's usually a full-sized beauty counter product. More on that in a bit. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with John Levy. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. So a little backstory on this. I was exposed to this author, actually, okay, backtracking. (laughs) I was familiar with this author's event that he does, which we will dive into. I was already familiar with that, but then this author released well, two books, but the most recent book is called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. And for my audience, this is a book and a topic that I normally would not be exposed to. Like it's not it's not the typical diet, health, fitness type of content that I normally have on this show, but the publisher submitted it to me and the title really caught my eye. And like I said, I was already familiar with the author's work that he does beyond this. I read the book. Oh my goodness, friends. It was literally just a consistent series of mind-blown moments when it comes to everything, humans, connection, cultivating trust, our experience of community and events and how we relate to people. And I read my books slowly. I tend to read them over a few days, if not weeks. And pretty much every day I was sharing the most recent mind-blown thing that I learned from this book. Another little tangent side note is I have my assistant who helps me create prep documents for the show. And occasionally she chimes in about how excited she is about the interview after reading all of my notes. And for this one, she was like, I can't wait to hear this episode. So guys, get ready. This conversation is going to be absolutely amazing. I am here with John Levy. John, thank you so much for being here. Are you kidding? I am super excited to hang out and talk and hopefully share a few things that'll really impact people's lives. Yeah, I've 
just been looking forward to this for so long. So I kept teasing the thing that you do. It is the Influencers Dinner. And I have heard about this for quite a while. And it's really a fascinating thing. So for listeners, would you like to tell them a little bit about what that is? So I'm going to first describe it in the most ridiculous way I can, and then I'll I'll break it down and actually explain it. Uh, So I've spent much of my adult life convincing people to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors, and then thank me for it. And I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but let me explain what really happens. So when I was about 28, I came across some research that kind of shifted my perspective on everything. It was a study by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, and they were curious about the obesity epidemic. And what they found was startling, that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know that person have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5% increased chance. And what's incredible about this is that this type of effect is also true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Basically, everything passes through our relationships. And so I got really curious if the people we surround ourselves with and the larger community that we're a part of has such a profound impact on us. How do I, at the age of 28, having an incredible amount of debt from college or no real career aspirations and, you know, I was overweight, how do I turn things around? Because what I was doing was kind of working a little, but not at the scale that I wanted. And so I came up with this ridiculous idea. I was going to research the behavior of highly influential people. And then from that, I was going to figure out how they'd actually want to connect with me. And uh, so as Melanie pointed out, I started something called the Influencers Dinner. 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody does. And that's when they find out that it's the editor-in-chief of a major magazine, a Nobel laureate, eight-time Olympic medalist, famous authors, celebrities, Oscar winners, Grammy winners, even the occasional princess. And so I've hosted over 2,000 people at 227 dinners in 10 cities and three countries. And it's grown into this really wonderful community. That is just so cool. And now I remember where I first heard about it. I think, was Dave Asprey one of your guests? Yes, Dave is a dinner alum. I've had the pleasure of hanging out with him several times since he actually had me speak at his Bulletproof conference. I was a guest in his virtual biohacking conference a few weeks ago. That's when I first heard about it. I think he talked about it. I mean, it was a while ago. That was a crazy dinner too, because we had like, I think we had 15 people. It was way too many. And there were just like a ton of celebrities for some reason at that specific dinner in L.A., and when people found out that he was like the, the coffee guy, they're like, oh my God, I love your coffee. And, and people like, he's the, the unexpected, like... Uh, like excited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the Trojan horse, the, the one nobody was expecting. Because, you know, we had like Adam Savage was there that night and we had a famous magician, David Kwan, who you might know as TED Talk. We had cast members from a whole bunch of popular shows from like Walking Dead. And we had uh, Once Upon a Time, the star of it was there. And yeah, it was just kind of this confluence of talent. And then he was there and that was like the the showstopper. So the very first dinner that you ever did, and there's a, I guess, a bigger question here as well. Did you know anybody? Like, how did you get the first connections? The first dinner, I knew everybody. There's this impression that like, you know, 
somehow I was connected to all these people from day one. That was absolutely not the case. I started off with people that I knew. I didn't know people that were that impressive by any stretch of the imagination, but they're wonderful. And they were like, you know, very respected hairstylist with a salon chain, a real estate developer in New York, like kind of random people I met at like personal development courses. And as I kept doing it, then people would recommend more and more impressive people. And then I discovered something really crazy. It's easy to get almost anybody's email address. Like it's, it's shockingly easy. Like every Nobel laureate, for example, is usually connected to a school. So their email address is public from the papers they write. It's amazing. I've discovered this as well. It's very shocking. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's, now listen, not everybody will answer. But if you know how to write a clear, concise email with a value proposition, that doesn't sound creepy. <laughs> and frankly, I'll be honest, my email probably sounds creepier because, you know, I'm some stranger inviting them to my house to cook me dinner. So actually, during the cocktail portion at the start of the dinner, usually about like 20 minutes in, I say, by the way, if anybody needs to message their spouses or friends to tell them know that, to let them know that you still have both of your kidneys and you're alive, then please go ahead. And like three people will go and start texting. Yeah, I remember because when I first started this show, I got some really incredible guests right at the beginning and people would always be like, how did you get them? And I was like, I emailed them. <laughs> I am. So I love that. The broader question, I guess, with what we just discussed is for people looking to form a lot of connections and create communities, to what extent does it matter how much of a community you already come from? Like, can anybody do it? So here's what I'll tell you. It helps. but. By no stretch of the imagination is it actually that important. There's a, a really interesting study. You know that six degrees of separation study that like everybody talks about? That's a really old study having to do with if I randomly give somebody a package in California or Alaska, let's say, and I say this package needs to get to a specific person in Chicago, how many people does it need to get to before it gets to the, the final sender, right? So like, oh, Chicago, I don't know anybody in Chicago, but I know somebody in New York, I'll pass it to New York. Then the person in New York says, well, I don't know that person in Chicago, so I'll pass it to a friend in Chicago. And so it passes, it was five and a half times. Facebook found that the entire planet averages somewhere between three and a half to four and a half, which means that if you want to get to somebody in your own culture or own city, it's probably far less than that. Uh, so it means that whoever it is that's important for you to connect with is probably a lot easier to reach then we realize we just haven't gotten organized around it. So if we have this effect, three people out, but we're also connected almost to the entire world, three people out, wouldn't everything be affecting? So let's also realize that most of this stuff is on the community level, right? So just because, Melly, let's say, for example, and I hope this isn't the case, let's say we talk today and never talk again. Because of Facebook, we'd call each other maybe Facebook friends or whatever it is, but we're not really connected. The people that are in our kind of inner circle is that first round, the people that we actually connect with. So I might be able to have an effect on you three degrees out because we have a bunch of friends in common or something like that. But the average is three and a half to four and a half, which means that some people are you know, more isolated, so it's six or seven, and some people are much closer, like our family, which is zero. Okay. Gotcha. So the difference is the level of connection, like the effect that we have on other people 
Because something else you talk about in the book is, and this blew my mind, (laughs) to continue the mind-blowing facts, you talk about the population of Sardinia and how they were analyzing longevity and they were looking at relationships and that the role of relationships and longevity and that you said that the second most important factor in longevity was close relationships, but the first was just loose connections. It's social integration. It's, yeah, it means that we're part of a community. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll explain really quick. Sardinia is what's called a blue zone. I think it's Dan Bueller who wrote the book. And he looked at all these places that people live far longer than others. And when analyzing it, there were certain commonalities among these different groups. But Sardinia is the only place where men and women live to the same age, which is strange because generally, frankly, women live longer. And they also have more centenarians, people who live 100 or older than any place in Italy. And it's like a multiple of the mainland. When researchers looked at what actually causes human longevity, on, I, I know we all love to like do a you know, kale cleanse or whatever it is, or take supplements. And these things are probably good for us on average, but they're not great predictors of longevity. Right? When we really look on the low end, it's like clean air and water, exercise and getting your flu shot are on par with each other, like your annual flu shot. And then it's quitting drinking, quitting smoking. And number two is having really close friends or family. So someone you can rely on, somebody you can call for advice or to vent, right? And number one is social integration. If you are part of a community, I think the argument is that when you're part of a community, you feel a sense of belonging. And for human beings, if you look, the greatest punishment that we can give people in general, in most places in the world, is actually solitary confinement or exile, which means that we're being pushed out of the community completely. And so for human beings, at the core of us is this need for belonging. When we have that, when we have safety in that feeling, we have a much more stable life. With that feeling of community and that feeling of belonging, does your own perception affect things? And what I mean by that is, you know, some people identify as introverts and some people identify as extroverts. And I feel like some people feel they might, as introverts, they might feel safe and connected without having quite as many relations. How does that play a role? So I don't know if anybody studied this specifically. What I can point to are two things. One is that it's not that we belong, it's that we have a sense of belonging, right? So it's not that you're part of a community, you have a sense of community. It's a feeling, kind of like being in love, right? Nobody's quantifying the amount of dopamine or oxytocin in your bloodstream and telling you, oh, Melanie, you're in love. You're like, you either say you are or you aren't and because of the way you feel. And so if a person feels a sense of belonging, with two other people and they don't feel like they need anything else, then that's great. That's for them. In general, if you look when people talk about introversion or extroversion, except for the people on the very edges, which are like, oh my God, that guy is the biggest introvert in the world, or that woman is wildly extroverted and we can't stop her, right? Like Dr. Ruth is the biggest extrovert I've ever met. Then there are people who are like so satisfied and happy being at home, alone, quiet for days on it. Now, those, besides those extreme, most people fit into like this, what they call ambivert area, 
they like being social. And then at a certain point, they like being by themselves. Regardless of how introverted or extroverted you are, we all like having friends. We all like having a sense of belonging. I think the key is also to separate being shy from introverted, because shyness is this fear of social judgment. It's that I'm scared people are going to judge what I say or do, and then I'll be exiled. Whereas introversion is kind of like your capacity and scale for being around people. The opposite of of shyness is actually like those gregarious people that say things that they just shouldn't. And whereas the opposite of introversion would be extroversion. So you can be a wildly shy extrovert and you could be a gregarious, like putting your foot in your mouth introvert. And now I'm reconceptualizing because I had always identified as an introvert. I'm trying to think if that's accurate. (laughs) Where do you feel like you fall on the spectrum? If I were completely honest, I think that we need to reevaluate the entire thing. And I think we need a different metric than just saying, I like being around people or I don't. I think it's unfair for us. I think it might be a question of how many people I like being around for how long. I could be around my wife indefinitely. I, <laughs> I can be around 100 people for like, you know, three hours and then I get really tired. That's similar to what I had heard before was like when you go to a gathering of people, like, does it bring you energy or is it draining? Like for me, like I love going to events with lots of people, but I mean, it, (laughs) at the end, I'm like, I'm tired. (laughs) I want to go home. (laughs) I've never met anybody who's like pure energized from being around people. I've met people who come alive in a different way around, right? So you look at, what's that great actor, Robin Williams would like, turn on when he was around people and come to life, supposedly. I I didn't know the guy. But I've never met somebody who's like had unlimited energy as long as they were around people. It's exhausting being on. Yeah. Another thing related to our perception and our feelings and our relationship to others, another mind-blown fact, you talk about the connection between physical pain and social pain. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and the Tylenol experiment. So... It's, it's super interesting. In our society, if, let's say, Melanie and I got into a fight and clearly she would beat me up, she could get arrested for it, right? Like, it makes sense. Or you could get arrested for it because you, you beat me up. And we're used to relating to physical pain as like this very serious thing that we cannot allow to happen. But this researcher, or these, this duo, I think it was, Matt Lieberman and his wife, ran this kind of crazy experiment. They had people come in to have their brain scanned while they played a really ridiculous game called Cyberball. And in this experiment, people are playing this video game where they just pass a ball from one person to the next, and there's three of them. There's three people in total. You play one of them. And the ball keeps passing around. And then at a certain point, the other two players just pass the ball to each other and start ignoring you. And suddenly people start feeling really socially alienated. They're cut out to the point that as they get out of the machine, they're like, wow, that was so strange. Why would that happen? Now, when researchers looked at the brain scans, the same areas of the brain that light up when people are experiencing physical pain were lighting up when people were experiencing social pain. And so the researchers started getting really interested. What if we then ran a second experiment? What if We had people take 
a pill for two weeks before coming and playing the game. Half of the people got a placebo, half of the people got a painkiller. And when they came, the people who got the painkiller demonstrated no social pain. And those who got the placebo did. And so we began to realize that maybe social pain and physical pain are more similar than we realize. Maybe when people are experiencing being made fun of, bullying, ostracization, loneliness, the level of pain in their brain is so profound, they might as well be dealing with broken bones. In the book, we begin to explore this question of if social pain is so great, well, then maybe it begins to explain a few other things like drug addiction, right? Because if I'm feeling lonely and isolated, could part of the problem of drug addiction be that I'm trying to self-medicate? And there's these theories and some examples that we dive into that seem to kind of corroborate this for at least part of the problem. It makes me wonder, I don't know if they looked at this at all in the studies or if there have been studies on this, like to what extent I wonder is the social and the physical pain the same brain state, but then the brain contextualizes it based on what we're experiencing. And then that's how we experience it as physical pain or emotional distress. Like, do you know how much the brain's bias? I I think that the areas are very close to each other, but they're not identical. Okay. So it's not like the literal exact same. You know, it's not like a single button being pushed by both, you know, the pain hand and sorry, by the physical hand and the emotional hand. Right. I think they're very close and they probably function similarly, but it's not the exact same thing. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. One of the things that made me think about that was you talk a lot in the book about our brains, you know, how we have all these biases about things. And because you talk a lot about trust, like you talk about the bias of how we instantly form, whether or not we trust somebody. And it's a little bit misleading. (laughs) I've seen a couple of photos of you because you're prettier, for example, then you're more likely to be trusted. Now, let's be honest, there's a lot of attractive people out there who we definitely shouldn't trust, right? Cheekbones and the size of your philtrum, which is the trapezium under your nose. Like all these kinds of things can have an effect on whether we trust people instantaneously. But it's just stuff that's programmed into us. And most of it's absolutely useless. Like it's not a very good evaluation. And in fact, I don't think I talk about this in the book. But judges who are supposed to be kind of like the best estimators of trust have like, I think it's a 53% accuracy in guessing if somebody's lying to them or not. So we are terrible judges of character in general. And I think the funniest is the number of people who work on like scam artist research that then get scammed. Yeah. Oh my goodness. The irony. Yeah, I I loved the whole section on trust in the book. And so it had me thinking a lot because my audience often tells me how much they trust me, like all the time. And I didn't consciously set out for that to happen. Like, I wasn't like, how can I make people trust me? I just, I did what I did, but then, (laughs) or I do what I do. But after reading your book, I was like, oh, now it kind of makes sense because you talk about the parts of trust. I have a bet on this one, which is when we look at what trust is actually made out of, and I explore this in depth and you're invited, researchers generally agree that it's made of three things, which is competence, your ability to do something, honesty, that you're truthful. And the third is benevolence, that you have people's best interests at heart. 
what's kind of funny is that although it's made up of three pillars, they're not all equally valued. So I'll give you a simple example. Uh, do you follow a sport of any kind? Oh, goodness. Competitive chess playing? I don't know. <laughs> USC football. Oh, my God. I, I know nothing about that sport. But let's just take, if you've heard of LeBron, right? If LeBron misses a shot, we don't say, oh, LeBron is incompetent. We can't trust him to play basketball anymore, right? It would be kind of silly to miss one shot and for us to lose trust in the person. And that's because we're pretty much okay if somebody messes up in terms of competence. But if you were to find out that somebody lied to you, you'd probably doubt everything they have said and everything they say moving forward. But there's a weird loophole and it works like this. So Melanie, the two of us were walking down the street and you turned to me and said, John, can we stop by a friend's house really quick? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. And when we get there, 40 of my closest friends jump out and scream, surprise! It would be really, really weird if I turned to you and said, Melanie, you just lied to me. We can't be friends anymore. Right. So if it's a good intention. Yeah, if you're doing it for benevolent reasons, we tend to be understanding, right? We value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence. And so my hunch is that you do these podcasts because you really want to contribute to others. It is built in benevolent intent. And then you probably share things that, to the best of your knowledge, are truthful. So you do it honestly. And hopefully you do it in a competent way consistently. And my hunch is that since you've done that over the long period and demonstrated that, that's built trust. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there.
it sparked a question in my mind though, which you addressed in the book because, so I read it and I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense why I feel like I've created a lot of trust. But then I was like, oh no, now am I going to be calculated? <laughs> like, you know, so what role does, like when implementing, because all throughout the book, you talk about, you know, all of these ways to build connections, form trust, create networks. Um, what role does like calculation or intentions or ethics play in all of that? So I think it's an interesting question, right? If I'm trying to connect with influential people, am I doing it because I just want to progress my career or because I really want to develop friendship? My objective personally is not just to become friends with people, but for them to connect with each other so it improves their lives. There's kind of two important points here. One is that everybody wants the contact, right? Like everybody wants those relationships. But let's say, Melanie, I think you're awesome. I want to have a really great friendship with you. If I actually want to have an amazing friendship with you, it's in my best interest to introduce you to the other extraordinary people I know. And the reason is that the more friendships we have in common, the more likely we are to stay in each other's inner circle. But if you exist as this person who's really far away, who I'm the only person in my world that you have contact with, it's really hard to maintain that friendship. It becomes much easier to have, let's say, benevolent intentions when my objective is for you to meet as many extraordinary people as possible. The other thing I do is that with my knowledge of behavioral science, I also tell people everything that I designed in order for our friendship to exist. So for example, in American society, the traditional thing is, you know, if I want to do business with you, I'll take you out for an expensive dinner or something like that, try to win you over. But it turns out that doesn't really work. What does work is the exact opposite. It's called the IKEA effect. And that's that we disproportionately care about our IKEA furniture because it's a pain in the butt to assemble. So anything that we invest effort into, we care about disproportionately. So when people come to the influencers dinner, they cook dinner together so that they can invest effort into one another. And I tell people that straight out. I say, hey, I want to develop a friendship with all of you. This is how human behavior works. So we're all going to be cooking together. And people actually really appreciate it. They actually think it's thoughtful that I put that much effort into building those relationships and those friendships. The caveat is like, <laughs> if I did it to get you hooked on cigarettes, then it stops being benevolent and starts being manipulative, right? Even if a person did have manipulative intentions, like, do you think you can form fake friendships that become real? Like in a way, does it take care of itself because you would only ultimately maintain or stay in a friendship if it was something that was possible of being a real friendship? I think we can definitely get kind of like addicted to people that aren't necessarily good for us, right? And do I think that manipulative takers can change? I think the phrase I once heard is, I don't believe it, but I see it every day. Like people do change. It's just really, really, really hard. And so my general view is that if you can create a community where certain behavior isn't acceptable and certain behavior is expected, then you can mitigate it. You can limit the desire to manipulate or the personalities that do, right? Just like how hanging out with people who are happier tend to make you happier and so on. So I think that the, the culture that we create will kind of define what we, we draw out of people. 
But I also do believe that in the extreme scenarios, there are people who are just awful <laughs> and we shouldn't be around them. And it's not going to happen. Yeah, actually, in that bring that that all brings things full circle with the community and the kindness and the connections. Like my Facebook group, for example, which is sort of like my micro community attached to the podcast. It's just really wonderful people. And so I also really enjoyed, you have a section in the book on technology communities and stuff. So I really appreciated that. But like, so I often get feedback about that group, about how everybody just loves it and feels just so accepted. And my only rule, like we don't really have a lot of rules, but my only rules is to be kind and to be open to other people's perspectives. And like, otherwise everything else goes, but I've just found that that I mean, that sort of takes care of as far as like interpersonal relationships and people feeling connected and safe, that pretty much works. The more open the community, the more moderation you need. If it's just close to the people who are already fans of the podcast, people don't want to risk being kicked out of a group. That's not a place where trolls are going to come and hang out. So it, it becomes easier to, to create a sense of belonging. And frankly, that sense of belonging is what drives us. When we look at the pillars of community, it comes down to membership. So there are people on the inside and those on the outside. So if it's a closed group, you already have the first kind of barrier to entry. If it's an open group, it might just be those who choose to participate. You have influence, which is they both feel like they have an impact on the community and the community has an impact back. And that's why online communities can be great because we can comment, post, support others, get support. The third is that there's an integration and fulfillment of needs, meaning the people who are part of your community are people who care about their personal wellness and development. And so by their participation, they get to experience it. And then I think one of my favorites is go got to be the fourth pillar, which is there's a kind of shared history or values. And why I like this so much is that our shared history doesn't even need to be real. So there's this amazing photo of two young women. They're probably about 24 years old. They're at Universal Studios, the theme park in Florida where Harry Potter world is or whatever it's called. They're dressed in full Hufflepuff head to toe with wands. And they're on diagonally and they're crying uncontrollably. And I love this photo because for the first time in their lives, those two young women got to be part of the storyline that has meant so much to them. They had this shared history of the Horrocruxes and the Deathly Hallows and Voldemort and Harry and Hermione. And for them, it existed as movies and memorabilia and books. And in the moment that they stepped foot onto the lot, it became real to them. And it was so overwhelming that they were crying. And that's one of those amazing things about community is that you can feel an incredible level of belonging that's completely invented. And that that's okay. You can love My Little Pony, or you could, you know, it could be Harry Potter. It could be Transformers. I'm a geek, so apparently all I can reference are like cartoons and Star Trek. Yeah, and Star Trek. Are you a big Trekkie? I've seen every single episode of the original series. Like you could probably tell me a plot of one of them, and I could probably tell you the title. I feel bad challenging you on uh, recorded podcast. But once the recording is over, you can keep recording. We can challenge each other and, and see if we could <laughs> see who the real geek is. Okay. You'll probably win. I don't know. I've, I've, I'm, so uh, I have no idea like you're, you're, if you've got receipts, if you've got street cred. I, but my point in all of this is, you know, as I was researching the book, 
One of the things that caught me off guard was in 1985, the average American had three close friends besides family. By 2004, we were down to two. That means in less than a generation, we lost a third of our close social ties. If the greatest predictor of our longevity is our social integration and our, our connection, that's terrifying. We're now lonelier than we've ever been. And because of the pandemic, it's gotten even worse. I think one of the most important things we can do for our health is to connect with people. What worries me is that, you know, the people who have lots of friends who are social will be fine. They'll make more friends and they'll be social. But the people who are feeling lonely at the start of the pandemic will probably have the tendency to feel even lonelier and more isolated and might end up just feeling left behind. And so I'm really concerned about how do we reach out to people and give them a sense of belonging and a sense of community. Are people who are feeling that sense of isolation, are they joining virtual communities and not connecting or just not connecting at all? Truth be told, I don't know. I think that there's, that it's all over the place. They might be on some subreddit or they might be sitting at home lonely, hanging out with their cat. And I have a cat. I'm not like, that's not to say that having a cat's the solution to loneliness. I think the issue is that the tendency is moving towards more loneliness and, and isolation in general. And what's a shame about this is that of all of the public health projects, the ones that cost a fortune to, you know, stop drug abuse or homelessness or any of these other things. Loneliness is something that actually doesn't require very much money to tackle. It requires a willingness to reach out and for people to accept the invitations. There's this perception that trust precedes vulnerability, but it actually doesn't. It works on something called a vulnerability loop. And so if let's say we're chatting and are walking down the street after you've forced me to a surprise birthday party. And I say, Melanie, I'm totally overwhelmed. I mean, this book launch has just drained me so much. In that moment, I've signaled vulnerability. And you have two options. You can ignore me or make fun of me and trust will be reduced. Or you can acknowledge what I just said and then put out your own signal. Like, John, I know how you feel. I've been recording so many episodes. I'm totally burned out. What are you struggling with specifically? In that moment, you've matched my vulnerability and you've completed the loop. And now both of us know that we can trust each other at this higher level. Fundamentally, that's why that IKEA effect works. Because when you're doing something that's too big for any one person to complete by themselves, when we're putting in joint effort, then it naturally opens and closes vulnerability loops. With each loop, What's probable is that we release oxytocin, that cuddle chemical, and it causes us to trust each other more and it creates a more pro-social experience. The issue is that if you're really lonely and isolated, it's hard to start those vulnerability loops. Either somebody needs to open one by saying, hey, Melanie, do you want to grab some food or take a walk? Or you need to find some place to open it by going to a friend or saying, saying something. But if you're already isolated, it can be really scary. So for people who are lonely, is it going to require some sort of outreach? Because you're saying like giving an invitation. What do you think is the practical solution of all of this? So I think there's a whole lot. First of all, the tendency is to want to network. 
And I have to say, networking is the worst. Yeah, I love that part of the book. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so bad. Literally, our. I, it makes me cringe. Yeah. And it should. It, there's nothing natural about it. It turns out that if you look at the research on networking, human beings feel dirty from it. They feel like they're, what's the phrase? Oh, they need to clean. Now, they don't feel that way when they talk about making friends. And I think that that's really interesting. So if I'm making a friendship, that feels natural for us. So the question should be, how do people make friends? And in general, people make friends over shared interests. So both of us really like Star Trek. Shared activities, which is something I love. So maybe you like hiking. You said, what is it, Quidditch and... What was the other? Football or something? What was the thing you said? Oh, USC. You, yes. Or cultural heritage, right? So if you celebrated some kind of cultural or religious holiday, then it would be easy for us to connect or easier. And we forget that. First and foremost, I'd say find, like you could just go onto meetup.com and find people in your area who have similar interests and activities. I prefer activity-based. And the reason is that that's what's natural for us. So Melanie, if the two of us went on a hike, part of the hike will be engaging in terms of the conversation. And then at certain moments, what'll happen is that we'll just stop chatting and we'll enjoy the scenery. And that's what's nice about activities is it takes the pressure off. And so you'll also notice that with the right activity, you have that Ikea effect built in. So if we're on a hike together, we're investing effort. When people go on dates... Does it have those characteristics built into it? Oh, for sure. If you want to design, you can actually hack dates to get the experience to be even better. There's something called, and, and before your mind starts wandering on what I mean by this, there's something called the misattribution of arousal. The misattribution of arousal doesn't mean sexual arousal. It's referring to uh, that our body is in an aroused state, like a heightened level. And the famous study is, Men were invited and they were individually, they crossed either a standard bridge or a high ropes bridge. And when they got to the other end, there was an attractive woman there. The woman said, here's my number. If you have any questions or need anything, please be in touch. And the men who crossed the high ropes bridge, the one that had their heart beating fast and had them all excited because, you know, adrenaline was pumping, called her out disproportionately to ask her out. And that's because we have a really tough time separating our physical state from what's around us. And so we associate the person who participates in exciting activities as exciting. And so if you want to do something really cool, then have exciting fun dates. If you want to be viewed as more like, you know, normal and quiet, then have quieter dates. But you could plan a super fun date that's kind of crazy. I mean, like if the person's up for it like skydiving, and <laughs> there's probably going to be a large misattribution of arousal there. They also might associate with you with absolute terror. This explains, I think, to me, so... Like your exes? No, no. That's why I dated that person. Oh, this is so funny. 
Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Well, I did date a well-known magician for a while. And I now I wonder, because there's... <laughs> A lot of excitement in like the magician world. I wonder if how much of that transfers over. Like I really love speakeasies because I love the the obstacles that you have to go through to like get in and the secrecy and the excitement. So I wonder that maybe explains a little bit why I'm so obsessed for that experience. So you talked about the IKEA effect. There were a few other little effects that you talked about that I really loved. So one was one that I had heard of before. And I remember the first time I ever heard about this, I was like, this is so freeing because I, I hate asking people for things. Like I don't want to bother people. Like I don't, I just, I, it makes me really uncomfortable. So hearing about the Ben Franklin effect <laughs> was really nice. 
effects. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. So the Ben Franklin effect is the like person to person version of the IKEA effect. Franklin had this contentious political rival. He wanted to win over, but he knew that that's not going to happen just by being nice to the person. Just like taking people out for an expensive meal isn't going to win them over. And so what he did was he asked to borrow a rare book from the man's collection. When he did, the person had to go far out of their way to bring it to Franklin. The two ended up being friends until the man's passing. That's because once somebody's willing to invest some effort into you, then in their mind, you're worthy of more effort and you must be important. And so there's this funny thing called stacking favors where researchers had people stopped on the street and asked for directions and mostly they wouldn't give them. But if you first ask them for the time and then ask them for the directions, then they will. And that's what's kind of crazy is that because they invest a little bit of effort, you can then ask them to invest more effort and they'll agree. The key here is that human behavior is counterintuitive. If there's somebody that's really important to us or they're like really fancy or influential or whatever, we actually want to ask them for favors. We want to ask them for small favors and then stack to bigger favors. So don't start by like asking somebody for a kidney. Go slow. And yeah, ask them for something a little more along the lines of, hey, which one is nicer, A or B? And then go from there and keep coming back. But here's the important thing. You need to come back with and also provide value. You can't just be a taker. Nobody likes takers. Actually, that was something else that you touched on, the difference between matchers, takers, and givers and their success rates. Would you like to talk about that? <laughs> so this was actually research by Adam Grant, who's a brilliant guy who wrote a book, Give and Take. And one of the things I emphasize in the book is that if you want to connect with really influential people, everybody's after something. And so as a byproduct, we want to be able to reduce their concerns that we're just after something from them too. And so we want to be generous. And it turns out that the research supports it. So Grant looked at givers, those who are generous, takers, those that are selfish, and matchers, those who mimic behavior. And what he found was that the least successful were the givers. But oddly, the most successful were the givers. And what separated the two groups of givers were those that knew where to draw the line. So if Melanie, you're super generous and you help everybody. And you help them so much that you don't get to finish your own work, your business is going to suffer. But if you allocate some time to support people and then get your work done, then what happens is that you'll end up getting the support of the givers, getting the support of the matchers, and also making sure that your work is complete. And so you, it's oddly the best strategy for success. Plus, it feels really good. So basically, give as much as you can without sacrificing your own performance or energy or successful completion of things. So I think it's, you know, sometimes you, it's hard to draw the line, right? Nobody's going to get this perfect. The issue is that you should give because it feels good and it helps people and it normally doesn't have any negative impact on you. And understand that it's also a really good strategy. But it's also important to have really healthy boundaries and know when to say no and know when to say that you can't. And if you can't, then you should say so. And people will need to respect that. A related tangent to that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on people's love languages and how that relates. And the reason I bring it up is my giving 
language for love is gift giving. (laughs) So I was wondering what your thoughts were on gift giving and when relating to other people. I don't know if you have any thoughts on people's love languages, if you think that comes into play. So I'm going to be really honest about gift giving. It's really a hard one. And the reason is that most gifts aren't really valued. And I'll give you an example. Let's say it's the holiday season. I buy you a t-shirt I think is really cool. And then I send it to you. First of all, what are the chances that I actually know your size and taste? Not so good. (laughs) Yeah, not so good. And so a shirt that I spend, let's say $100 on, you might value at $10 because it's not really your style. So now we've just lost $90. And that's a bit of the problem with gift giving. Also, corporate gift giving is the worst because they send you like a logoed t-shirt for their, with their logo. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> why do I want to be a living billboard for you? Right? So there are gifts that work really well. Like, here's a wild one. And I know that we've sp- spoken about Harry Potter a bunch. It's just an easy example. The CHRO, Chief Human Resources Officer of Verizon, which is a huge company, is a huge Harry Potter fan. I mean, massive. Her son's name is Harry. Right. Like, ridiculous. She is about as delightful a human being as one could actually ever meet in their life. And she is beloved by the staff. I mean, just an awesome person. I wanted to get her a gift. Now, I could have sent a bottle of wine or like a holiday loaf or whatever junky thing people tend to get. But I also know that she loves Harry Potter. So I tracked down a woodworker to make a film replica scale reproduction of the Elder Wand from Harry Potter. And then I had it sent to her house with a note that quoted Dumbledore about how greatness or something, I don't even remember what it was. And she loved it so much, she didn't know it was from me because the person messed up the note that she kept it either by her bedstand at night or on her desk as she worked. Now that's a gift that means something to people. That's a vulnerability loop. I took a risk because I knew something about her and the loop was complete by her appreciation of it. This resonates with me so much. So like when I do make gifts for people, I try to make something like personalized or handmade that relates to something I know that they really, really like. I sort of have this fear that I'm going to give a gift to somebody just because it's something I like. (laughs) And then I feel like that's selfish in a way. Like, you know, if you're just giving it to them because you like it. So yeah, I'm just really intrigued by the whole gift giving concept. So that was inspirational. (laughs) One other thing. So you spoke about predicting behavior and our biases and how we don't consciously, the decisions we make about people aren't always based on reality. You have a really fascinating section on predicting behavior and you talk about Disney World. Oh, that was something that was told to me. I didn't do that research. I mean, but the people at Disney, I mean, the thought that they put into every little detail is incredible. Have you ever been to Disney World? Yeah, it's like my favorite place. Okay. Have you ever noticed that the floors are a shade of red? Yes. They're like a rose. So it turns out that they pick that shade. I think it was developed by Kodak to reflect just the right amount of red onto your cheeks so you seem rosier and happier in photos. Like nothing is left up to chance there. I think that every garbage can is 25 paces away. And the reason is that at 28 paces, people drop stuff on the floor, right? So there's a, 
an incredible level of design. And and the key here is that it's, you know, I share the story about trying to predict a person's behavior. This guy named Jeff Davis came to LA and his, you know, within a few months, his Google searches started getting really creepy. And they started being about like beheadings and ceremonial sacrifices and serial killers. And Google doesn't have this obligation to like report it when people start going like off the deep end in their searches. And as a result, I think it was like 200 and some odd people were killed. More accurately, characters were killed because Jeff was the creator of Criminal Minds. And it kind of goes to show that just because somebody has weird search habits doesn't mean that that's what they're like. Jeff is literally the nicest guy in the world. Uh, He's known for really creating community between his writers and giving people their shots in Hollywood. But when you look at one person's data, you can come up with these conclusions that are completely wrong. But when you look at large sets of data, then you can maybe find patterns. And that's the kind of stuff that Disney does, right? They looked at the number of steps before somebody throws something on the floor. And they found that most people, it's about 28. And so they put the garbage cans 25 steps away. And what we want to do when we're designing experiences, interactions, products, is really look at how do people actually behave? Not how do we want them to behave? How do we hope they behave? None of that actually matters. And the fact is, human beings generally act insanely irrationally. <laughs> like, we are ridiculous. So how do people often pan out in real life compared to on paper? Or especially people like on dating apps or looking to make friends? Oh, there, there's some really funny stuff. But I think you know this. I did the largest study in history on mobile dating. I think it was, at least. Uh, we looked at 421 million potential matches. And what we found was that the more similar you are, the more likely you are to date. Opposites do not attract at all. That goes down to like religion, which school you went to, like all these kinds of things. The more similar you are, the more likely you are to date, with one weird exception. And that is we thought introverts would date introverts and extroverts would date extroverts. But it turns out the introverts almost never start conversations. So it requires an extrovert. Yeah, I mean, like just somebody needs to get them going. I, th- there are some introverts that talk to introverts. It's just like, it's just really rare. And two extroverts, oh my God, extroverts date a ton. So I think that that's kind of a funny thing. The other thing we discovered was that if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. Super weird. It's called implicit egotism. Anything that reminds us of ourselves is more attractive or appealing. The fact is that the things that affect our behavior are so irrational and so stupid. (laughs) But that's what it is to be human, frankly. Yeah. One of the stories I learned from your book that I now tell everybody whenever it remotely relates to the Mona Lisa. Yeah. That's crazy, right? So uh, for the listeners, if you didn't know this, the Mona Lisa until 1911, nobody had heard of it. It was painted in the early 1500s. In the mid 1800s, finally, somebody even noticed it as a good example of Renaissance art. And then in 1911, a a man walked into the Louvre, walked into the Renaissance section, found kind of the smallest, most random painting on the wall. Nobody was even, nobody cared about it, ripped it off the wall and disappeared with it. And the story of the painting went viral. 
And it became so popular that over the following years, people stood in line just to see the empty spot on the wall of the Louvre. And three years later, when it was returned, the story went viral again, making it the most famous painting in history. And now people think it's like this insane work of art that's better than all the rest. But really, it's just that it was stolen and became famous. And the more we see something, the more we tend to like it or trust it. And so the Mona Lisa now, I think, gets 8 million viewers standing in line for a selfie with it. And it's all because of some crazy story about how it got stolen. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. That is crazy. Yeah, now whenever it remotely relates to the conversation, I'm like, do you know why the Mona Lisa is famous? <laughs> and nobody knows. This is my fun fact of the day for you. Exposure effect, it doesn't have to necessarily involve other people, right? It can just be exposure to anything, like an object or anything. The mere exposure effect could be exposure to anything. Yeah, it could be a painting like the Mona Lisa. It could be somebody's voice. It could be literally anything. It could be a dress. It could be, I mean, why is Kim Kardashian famous? She's famous for being famous. That takes a skill set and it's impressive that she's been able to accomplish it. But and it's not like she's a famous, like for the same reason as Tony Robbins. She isn't, you know, doing research and trying to help people develop or she didn't even really make a product of any kind. I'm just thinking about how much our exposure to things and then other people affects us and it's not necessarily based on any logic or sound reason. Like I, the other day I was walking outside. So outside of my apartment, it's a two-way street, but you can park along the sides. And I realized on one side, and there was one open spot, but every single car was parked the wrong way, like parallel parked, but opposing direction of traffic. And I had to park and I was like, do I park? <laughs> Do I park the right way or do I park the wrong way with everybody else? So I parked the wrong way with, <laughs> with everybody else. I love that you did this. There's a bunch of very famous experiments that play into this. And the way it works is you walk into a group setting. I ask you, 
which option A, B, or C is shorter, is a shorter line than in the example line. And it's very, very clear that option B is the answer. Very clear. But everybody in the group says option C, which is clearly longer. And what happens is that almost everybody who is put in this scenario will say option C, even though they know better. And the reason is that we assume that if everybody else is doing something, then we must be wrong in our view. And all it takes is if there was just one car parked the other way, you would have had permission. I have some good news and some bad news for you, Melanie. <laughs> the good news is I'm sure your car is fine. <laughs> the bad news is you're a follower. I thought about you, John. I thought about the book. I thought about what I learned. I was like, this is what this is. And, and like, listen, I say this laughing, but like, I'm not immune to it either. We all do this. Like, I could literally be the person who does this kind of research. And then, you know, there's uh, funny experiments where people go and wait at like a doctor's office. Every two minutes, there's a, a buzzing sound and all the people there stand up and then sit down. So you walk into the scenario. And so you see all these people standing up and sitting down and you think maybe you need to do it. Right. And so people start doing it. And slowly, like they call people in. And so all the original people have left, but all the new people continue to do it. And so it's not like it's a you thing, it's a all of us thing. Just like I, I might make fun of you and say, oh, you're a follower. So am I. It's so funny. I think it was the first moment where it happened and I just was so aware. And then I still made the conscious decision. <laughs> You, it's uncomfortable because you're like, I know I should know better, but I can't help myself. And I don't know what to do right now. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. One of the first things, and one of the reasons it's been so amazing is one of the first things you say in the book, I think, is you talk about the quality of life and how the quality of life is determined by, is it the people around you and the conversations that you have? Nailed it. I was like, that's a keeper quote. <laughs> I'm remembering that. Can I speak to this for a second? Because Oh, please. Yes, please. So clearly the people we surround ourselves with, right? Like if your friends don't want to exercise and they just want to eat tubs of popcorn, you're probably not going to have the best of habits. But I do want to emphasize that there's a second half of the sentence because it doesn't mean that you have to get rid of all your friends who you don't like all of their habits. It's the conversations that we have with them. So the first story I share is about this woman, Jean Nightage who views herself as really overweight and in fact gets confused for being pregnant. She ends up saying, okay, I want to lose weight and realizes at a certain point she cannot do it by herself. And so she invites all of her friends who are overweight to play Mahjong together. But really what it is, is an opportunity to change the conversation that their community has, to talk about their shame and their struggles in an open way. It worked so well that they decided to do it, I think it was twice a week from that point on. And that turned into Weight Watchers. And so traditionally you'd think, oh, it's a bunch of overweight people that I'm bringing together. That's actually going to increase my weight. But when you change the conversation to something empowering, if you can create a safe space where those vulnerability loops can open and close, suddenly you can change everything. I think it's important to realize that whether it's meeting new people or it's starting a new conversation with people, it all begins with a vulnerability loop. And that vulnerability loop is an invitation. It's 
the fact that they're invited to participate in something, either a community, a friendship, an activity, or a conversation. That is so incredible. And for listeners, now you understand why I was so excited about this particular conversation for so long, because it's just absolutely mind-blowing. And I love when you learn things, I guess that this is sort of what like behavioral science is, but you're learning to see things that were already there. And then once you learn about them, then you start seeing them as opposed to, you know, I mean, I learned a lot of completely new information, but as opposed to just learning, you know, facts, it's like you learn a new way of seeing and it just provides such insight to your behavior and your life. And friends have got to get this book. (laughs) You're invited. (laughs) Was there anything else you wanted to touch on for listeners? I know there's a lot more in the book, but. I mean, there's tons in the book. I think the most important thing is we really make an effort to include people like those friends that are sometimes quieter and more lonely. I just don't want to find a situation where we could have really contributed to people and they just became more isolated. Especially just because you're lonely doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Like there's no relationship between those two. Right? Uh, some of the most wonderful friends I have are quiet introverts and I will forever be inviting them because I know they'll never invite me and that's fine. It's just not in their personality. But I really enjoy our time together. And so... My job is to keep inviting and their job is to keep accepting, even if they're scared to. I love that. That's a really beautiful, greater mission and purpose to everything. Are you writing your next book? Oh my God. I'm not done even promoting this one. So I'm already thinking about it. I'm thinking of doing something around burnout. I'm thinking of doing something. I mean, like there's all these ideas floating around because I can't help myself. Probably much like yourself. Like you, I always have more ideas than I have time to do them, but I'm kind of kicking the tires on a lot of things. Awesome. Well, hopefully for your future work, I'd love to bring you back on the show if you're open to it. The very last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? What am I grateful for? I have to say that I'm grateful that people accepted my invitations, all 2000 plus people. I have a really wonderful life. And it's because of the absolutely terrible cooking that I've had to endure over the past 10, 12 years. I've hosted phenomenally fantastic and successful people and had the privilege of becoming friends with many of them. And my life is really great because of that. I guess I'm thankful for terrible Mexican food, which is what we cook. We make burritos. Oh, it's Mexican every time? Yeah, it's really hard to find meals that work for everybody's diet. So if like you're keto, you can just do it in like... Not do the tortilla. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And if you're vegan, we have options. Like, you know, everything works. That's really what I think I'm most thankful for these days. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much, John. I am so grateful for your work, everything that you're doing. I can't wait to share this with listeners. They're going to love it. I'll just ask you, what's your favorite Star Trek episode? Oh, wow. I have a few favorite quotes, right? So there's a episode of The Next Generation where Picard and Data are talking. And Data is playing a game that he just can't win for some reason against this game master. And he assumes that he's broken as a result. And he's running all these diagnostics. And Picard stops by his, his room and says, why aren't you like on your feet working. And he says, well, clearly there's a problem with me if I can't win. 
And Picard's response is something to the extent of data, it is possible to make zero errors and still lose. That's not a flaw. That's life. You know, essentially get over it. And I think that that's really uh, profound in the sense that as a behavioral scientist, most of us judge our decision making based on the result. And that actually doesn't work. You can make a terrible decision and have an amazing result, and you can make great decisions and have terrible results. What I care about is, did we make good decisions? And was the thinking there? So I, I really love that episode. I love that. That was amazing. That, <laughs> that was incredibly freeing. And it was from Star Trek. I'm so happy right now. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Well, thank you for your time. And hopefully we can talk again in the future. I'd love to come back when the time comes. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.